Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker, along here with Luke Benke, as always. This is the show where we talk about and recap the news of the week, whatever's happening in the legal sector, keep you updated. Luke, what do we have up this week? Prosecutors in New Mexico are downgrading the manslaughter charges against actor Alec Baldwin. Uh, Preliminary reports out of Ohio suggest the catastrophic train derailment could have been avoided. And a tech company promising an AI lawyer faces significant backlash from lawmakers, prosecutors, and state bar associations after its CEO promises to provide in-court legal advice. As a reminder, you can always find us everywhere you get your podcasts, and here's what you need to know. Quick update on the Alec Baldwin matter. The manslaughter charges against him relating to the 2021 fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust have been downgraded by prosecutors in New Mexico, which will reduce the prison time the actor could face for the death of the movie cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Baldwin is released on personal recognizance, which is a release without the requirement of uh, posting bail. Essentially, it's based on a written promise by the defendant to appear in court when required to do so. The terms of Baldwin's release require him to abstain from alcohol. He also can't own a gun or speak with other witnesses of the shooting. Prosecutors also downgraded the charges against the movie's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. As of the date of this podcast, both Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed have pleaded not guilty to those criminal charges. Separately, members of Hutchinson's family are suing Baldwin, the movie's production company, and others over her death in civil court in Los Angeles, alleging the defendants caused intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and loss of consortium. Baldwin and the production company have already settled one civil suit with Hutchins' widower. Jack, are you uh, surprised at all by the reduction in charges against Baldwin and the armor? No, I, I think we covered that um, pretty well a couple episodes back. In fact, we, I think, may have called our shot on this one. Uh, it's the uh, initial charges were some version of first degree, um, intentional homicide, if I recall. And, you know, that just clearly was not the case here. Um, civil suits though, uh, I think have a lot of legs and I think that those, uh, those are going to go pretty far in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking maybe we explain that more for our listeners, right? Because I think, uh, a lot of folks that maybe aren't involved in the, legal world think, okay, you've got this criminal case and that's it. Um, and so, but it's, but that's not always the case, right? I mean, there are times where, um, you know, maybe for whatever reason, you know, a defendant would be found not guilty in a criminal case, but that doesn't mean that the defendant, you know, is walking away from this thing, you know, scot-free. And, and this might be one of those situations. I mean, we know that we saw Baldwin sort of already settled with the deceased's widower, um, and it looks like now he's got, you know, other suits to deal with from other family members on the civil side. So, you know, at the end of the day, even if he's found not guilty of the of these manslaughter charges, um, still going to cost him a lot of money. Yeah, I would say that the prime example of, of what you mentioned uh, of the defendant um, being found not guilty in the criminal context, but then being found, found liable in a civil context is O.J. Simpson. Right? O.J., yeah, the juice. That's the... That's like the, the, 
the quintessential example that comes to mind when I think about that. So this could very well, you know, be a scenario, and I think it probably will be, where there's quite a lot of civil liability imposed against Baldwin and the production crew and the staff and whatever without much criminal liability. Do you have any problem with, uh, and maybe it's too early to say, I don't know, but does this seem to you like it's, um, you know, these prosecutors in New Mexico are trying to get their 15 minutes of fame here? Uh, I think that overcharging for the sake of getting in front of a camera and a press conference and everything like that, man, this is going to make people mad. Um, I think that that is endemic (laughs) among uh, prosecutors, especially ones with political aspirations, and you see it everywhere. So, um, boy, people are not going to like to hear that, but uh, I, yes, I do. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's interesting. I'm asking because I really don't, you know, I have I have next to zero experience with, you know, criminal law and prosecutors. And I know we've got a lot of, you know, people in in our firm and across, you know, the industry in general that have a lot of experience with uh, criminal law. And I'm wondering, like, man, just seems like this is kind of a, you know, this it just seems like a case that I wouldn't necessarily take. And it's like, what, what are your what are the motivations for uh you know, for, for charging, uh, you know, Baldwin in a case like this. And, and that's interesting. I, I, I suspected that that was the case, but I, you know, I didn't know. That's why I'm asking. There's something else going on here besides a neutral administration of justice, I think, um, whatever it is. Oh yeah. Okay. So a statement released by Heather Brewer, a spokeswoman for the New Mexico first judicial district attorney's office. So, you know, a mouthpiece for the prosecutors said the enhancement charge was being dropped quote, to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys, uh, adding that the prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys, close quote. And I'm like, give me a break. Like, are you, you're the one charging him. You yeah, know, I mean, you- the one time it is, it is like totally justifiable to, to treat the case like it's the most important case in the world and it's, you know, the consequences are grave is when you're being accused of murder, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's like, this is a, absolutely a time where they should be taking this seriously and billing as many hours as they need because it's Alec Baldwin who's paying. Um, you know, it's, it's not a frivolous defense. And if I'm Alec Baldwin, I'm like, please bill around the clock. Cause I don't want to go to prison for murder. <laughs> According to Reuters, the chair of the NTSB, that's National Transportation Safety Board, said the train derailment that spilled toxic chemicals in an Ohio town might have been avoided if the railway company's alarm system had given engineers an earlier warning that bearings were overheating. In its preliminary report, the NTSB said the train engineer applied brakes as soon as an alarm rang to warn of an overheated axle on the Norfolk Southern train. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hammondy told reporters in Washington, quote, had there been a detector earlier, that derailment may not have occurred, close quote. The incident prompted the evacuation of thousands of people and, of course, raises serious health concerns. Norfolk Southern, the operator of the train, said in an emailed statement to Reuters that it is cooperating fully with the NTSB and that its system to detect overheated bearings was operating normally in the area where the accident took place and also said its warning system is among the most sensitive in the industry. Now, as you can imagine, the derailment has 
sparked a political battle and a blame game over railroad safety regulations, with residents voicing concerns over the long-term health impact of the millions of pounds of carcinogenic chemicals spilled in their town. Hammondy said that in 2021, there were 868 derailments across the United States of freight cars in the same class as the Norfolk Southern train that wrecked, a number that she says is far too high and the result of both the industry and government not implementing previous NTSB safety recommendations. For context, the rail industry says 99.9% of all hazardous material shipments reached their destination without incident, and the hazmat accident rate has declined substantially by some 55% since 2012. Now, according to the Reuters story, some rail safety requirements were withdrawn under former President Donald Trump, and now some Republican critics of the East Palestine response who previously opposed rail regulations have now expressed an openness to new rules. President Joe Biden and his administration have said Norfolk Southern must pay for the damage and cleanup efforts, and the EPA even ordered company officials to attend town hall events after executives failed to attend an earlier meeting in East Palestine. So, Jack, on this podcast, we've touched on uh, company responsibility for societal ills. And I know with your practice, you're heavily involved with transportation issues. Uh, any thoughts on the accident and, and where we go from here? I mean, it's it's tragic. Um, you know, this is one of those things where, like, we're not going to know how bad it is until years or decades down the road. Um, I saw reports that the uh, that various chemicals were showing up, uh, in the Ohio, Ohio river, um, you know, downstream of, of Palestine, Ohio. And if, if I remember correctly, something like 10% of all Americans live in the Ohio river Valley and are, you know, that's where their drinking water comes from. Of course it's filtered and everything else, but still, it's just one of those things where like, I don't think we're going to know how bad this is until way down the road. Um, in terms of whose fault it is, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you want to just kind of let the process play out in terms of investigation, but uh, I do know that there's been loud criticism from, um, from a lot of folks. Uh, there's been criticism of the way in which the Biden administration handled the recent rail strike, um, which, you know, he kind of dropped the hammer on that. And one of the complaints that the, the unions had were safety complaints. I don't know how relevant that was to this accident. After the fact, I know a lot of people are saying, see, you know, we should have got, we should have taken care of this. That's what we were striking for. I don't know if they actually were or not. Um, but, uh, and then I see other folks complaining of the, you know, what you mentioned, which is the uh, certain deregulations that happened under the Trump administration. I have no idea if either one of those caused or contributed to the accident. Um, however, I think that everyone ought to be able to agree that even if 99.9% of these Freight trips carrying hazardous chemicals are, are mostly fine. The one time it happens is catastrophic. So you have to uh, – the margin of error is still too big. And, and whatever needs to happen needs to happen. So on the one hand, it's like can anything just be an accident anymore, right? Uh, on the other, which is sort of what the rail industry is saying, right? They're saying, look, most of what we do is, you know, is fine. Like nothing goes wrong. Um, and that's, you know – that's great for a lot of things, but you're right. When you've got a situation where it's like, you know, the point, uh, 1% of 
of times that something does go wrong. I mean, this is catastrophic. People are going to lose their homes. I mean, it's going to be like a, yeah, I guess I don't, I'm not an environmental expert, but if it's another, you know, Chernobyl type situation, right. Where you just, you've just got you've just wiped a, a city off the map. Um, and, and, you know, you got these pollutants getting into waterways, which means that they're going to spread, you know, far and wide. You're right. It, it's just, it's unacceptable to have an accident of this magnitude at all. Right. And if that means like this, that this train has to creep across the country. So these things don't overheat. Well, then so be it. Um, right. You know, it's got to be the situation where 100 percent of all hazardous material shipments reach their destination without incident. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I would come down on on the side of. Um, of making sure this never happens. Right. I mean, saying that saying that nothing goes wrong most of the time. Um, doesn't cut it in this situation, in my opinion. Completely agree. Up next, this one has been sort of percolating my brain for a few weeks now. I've done some writing on it, some research, and was recently interviewed for a tech journal that I hope gets published before this episode comes out. Um, but here's what we're talking about. There's a company called Do Not Pay. If you go to their website, you'll see a banner which calls it the world's first robot lawyer. That's on like the top of the website. The description goes on to say, quote, the Do Not Pay app is the home of the world's first robot lawyer. Fight corporations, beat bureaucracy, and sue anyone at the press of a button. So sue anyone at the press of a button is someone who practices primarily on the defense side. That sounds like, you know, my own personal nightmare, but I digress. The idea of the app, which is allegedly powered by artificial intelligence of some kind or another, um, can assist in filing certain things in court. But if you go and you actually click on the most popular features uh, section, I'll read the top 10 on that list to you, or the top five rather. Um, number one is break down the Discord phone verification bypass. Number two, how to get fake phone number for Google verification. Number three, Tinder phone number verification. Number four, how to get fake phone number for Twitter. Number five, how to find and use fake phone number in four easy steps. Um, so there seems to be uh, some aspect of this that is prominently focusing on um, getting around verifications for certain websites. Uh, there's the blog section of the website as well, which here's its last five posts. Number one, how to pay your Houston water bills. Uh, number two, how to remove my case from the internet instantly. Number three, how to recover your, your forgotten workday password hassle-free. Number four, how to stay in touch with inmates in uh, prison. Number five, sending money to an inmate has never been easier. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, Jack. It sounds like my search history. <laughs> so this is like <laughs> so it's you know it says it's a robot lawyer but it's like i don't know it doesn't seem like a whole high level of lawyering going on here but that's kind of besides the point of this story the app seems like it's at least geared at bypassing like phone trees for bill payments and disputes along with bypassing annoying verification processes and other applications i've never used it um i have absolutely no idea how effective it is but these seem like legitimate applications and if do not pay can help me, you know, for example, cancel my gym membership. That's, that's great. Uh, the problem is that I've observed from do not pay's founder, uh, a man, Joshua Browder, 
Um, he's made some interesting claims recently on Twitter um, that I've been following. And specifically, on January 20th of this year, he tweeted the following. On February 22nd at 1.30 p.m., history will be made. For the first time ever, a robot will represent someone in a U.S. courtroom. Do not pay AI will whisper in someone's ear exactly what to say. We will release the results and share it after it happens. Wish us luck, unquote. So a few things before we jump into what actually happened next. Again, I have no idea whether do not pay works or not. Generally, I hope it does. I have no ill will towards the founder of the company or the company or whatever. And everything after this is just my opinion as a humble observer. So law Twitter kind of jumped all over this because, you know, telling someone what to do in court is tantamount to giving legal advice. Browder defended the product, saying that the judge wouldn't even be made aware of it in advance and that the AI wasn't entering an appearance, etc. Let's set aside whether this is a good idea or not, and let's set aside whether the software even works or not. I want to talk about the very basic principle that serves to kind of highlight a trend that I expect to see more as AI technologists begin um, to, you know, quote, move fast and break things, to borrow a phrase from the great book by Jonathan Taplin on the subject. So companies like Uber uh, come to mind. So do companies like Tesla with its on-road beta testing, Facebook with its data tracking, Google, et cetera, technology companies that quickly expand by maneuvering in legal gray areas and essentially try to outflank regulators by establishing themselves as, you know, a valuable service for consumers before regulators can catch up. That's to make a very long story short, that is a little bit what Uber did with its non-employee driver model, which sort of circumvented city taxicab licensing requirements and continues to push up against the boundary of what's considered a quote-unquote employee for purposes of employer liability, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think that you're going to see this with AI everywhere. AI software products will be preparing tax submissions, we'll be doing basing accounting work, accounting work, and yes, eventually we'll be doing some amount of legal work. I don't exactly know if there's a lot of tech professionals in our audience, um, but if so, please take heart to what I'm about to say. Please be careful about the ethical and legal ramifications of attempting to disrupt the legal industry. It's not a taxi company. It's not an advertising company. Much of what we do is expressly protected by and even mandated by the U.S. Constitution. These legal traditions that go back to the English common law go back some 400 years. So what happened to do not pay in this scenario is a great example of what I'm talking about. Browder said that he was going to have his company whisper into the ear of pro se litigants while they were in court. After that, according to a number of outlets, he was contacted predictably by a number of state bar associations and prosecutors who basically said to him, hey, if you do this in our jurisdiction, we're going to put you in jail. And he tweeted on January 25th, just a few days after his initial announcement that, quote, good morning, bad news. After receiving threats from state bar prosecutors, it seems likely they will throw me in jail for six months if I follow through with bringing a robot lawyer into a physical courtroom. Do not pay is postponing our court case and sticking to consumer rights, unquote. Now, I don't know what these prosecutors actually said to Browder, but I can guess it has something to do with the strict prohibition against the unlicensed practice of law. And we don't need to get into what the technical definitions of that are, but I I will point out that the prohibitions against the unlicensed practice of law go back as 
really as old as this country has existed. And before that, another couple hundred years in England. Um, way back in 1841, the uh, Supreme Court of Illinois uh, said that the prohibition of unlicensed practice was, quote, not as a restriction upon the citizen or the suitor, but for his protection against the mistakes of the ignorance and the unskilled unskilledness of the pretenders. So while I appreciate what Browder's trying to do here, prohibition on the unlicensed practice of law isn't some ticky-tack protectionist regulation. The rule is kind of a cornerstone of our legal system. It keeps the ill-intentioned, the scammers, or the simply amateurish, ignorant practitioners from mucking up our judicial system. I'm not suggesting that that's what do not pay is, but I can say with confidence that it doesn't meet the mandatory requirements imposed in all 50 states to show that it isn't like that. Uh, getting rid of lawyers, which is kind of the tone of what uh, do not pay and its supporters have, have been talking about, getting rid of attorneys would likely require several acts of Congress and, in my opinion, probably a constitutional amendment. It's not as simple as swaying some city council members to not enforce licensing requirements like in the Uber case, et cetera, we'd probably have to change the constitution. So if you want to disrupt the legal services industry, there's plenty you can do within the margins. Uh, LegalZoom has been providing boilerplate legal forms for like 10 years now, for example. Um, I'm sure some states will loosen restrictions as this AI software proves itself. But if your goal is to create a one-for-one -one replacement for lawyers and literally have that AI replacement lawyer give in-court legal advice to litigants, I think that's about as unrealistic as it comes, and I would be willing to bet is not going to happen in our lifetime. Um, I know it was a bit of a digression from our usual programming, but uh, Luke, I am interested in your thoughts on this. What do you think of the likelihood of a robot lawyer taking your job in the future? Uh, I, th I think they're not good, but I, I the, the 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 Illinois Supreme Court uh, decision that you cited from what did you say, eighteen forty one? Yep. Funny how that still resonates today, right? I, I think you said it best. This isn't about, you know, sort of protecting, you know, Jack Sanker's livelihood or Luke Banky's livelihood. Um, it's about uh, making sure that uh, everyone, you know, gets their, their sort of due process requirement. And I get that the response to that is going to be, well, you know, if you're proceeding pro se, you should be entitled to use whatever information, you know, you think you you need you know in a courtroom um there are, ai is so intriguing and it's so dangerous right i mean there there are just some spaces where um it's not it's not gonna work um medicine you know kind of comes to mind um and and i think the legal profession is is another one of those professions where ai um Man, maybe not for all of it, but it it certainly has a long way to go before it's before it's useful. Certainly before it's representing somebody before a judge or a jury in a courtroom. Yeah, and I and I appreciated, and I even like embraced the idea of one day being able to, uh, you know, just put in certain parameters into a, an AI prompt box and have it spit out a, a, a you know a contract for me, um, which is going to save the client money. It's going to save me time. Um, all of that. And I, I think that that's, you know, plausible. That's certainly within the realm of possibility and probably pretty soon. But um, I, I see this with these, you know, kind of disruption minded um, tech entrepreneurs. Uh, and I 
I, it is the difference between the practice of law and these other areas where they've kind of been able to get ahead of the regulators, establish themselves, and then, you know, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. The difference between the practice of law in those industries is that is everything that I've already said. It's it's in many cases constitutionally protected. Um, it's kind of foundational. There's a lot of things that don't work if you get rid of uh, the right to counsel, the right to cross-examine, um, you know, jury requirements, all these other things that would be called into question if we started just you know using algorithms to decide things and argue things. So uh, I just I don't think that that level of scale is going to be achieved so quickly the way that you saw um, these other tech tech companies kind of sprout out of the ground and turn into hundred billion dollar companies over the course of a couple of years. I just don't think it's going to happen in this case. Um, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, let me ask you this. So what is AI designed to do? I mean, is it designed to say, Hey, this is the statute you want to cite right now? Because at the end of the day, at least in, in criminal trials and most civil trials too, uh, that aren't tried to a judge go to a jury. You still have 12 humans sitting in a box making a decision. You still have a human calling balls and strikes. You know, that's what the judge is supposed to do. And so what what sort of benefit is AI going to give you in the courtroom? I, I've got to understand that a little more. Because if it's if, if it's just a fancy textbook, um, you know, how that's great. How helpful is it? Yeah. If, if it's a super effective research assistant, like that's great. You know, if I could if I could find the exact case I'm looking for, you know, right at the moment where I, I really need it, like that's fantastic. And I, if someone offers that service and eventually someone will, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, we'll be subscribing to it. Um, but that's very different than whispering in someone's ear <laughs> and telling, you know, what to say to a judge um, when asked, you know, certain questions and everything else. And as you and I know, the, and anyone who's listening who practices knows like, just being able to recite what the law is and then you know loosely apply the facts to that law i mean that is less than 50 percent of what you would consider to be advocacy uh probably you know that's that's not going to get you far um in my opinion so you know even if this thing worked as advertised and i don't know if it does or doesn't but even if it did i i just i don't see it being effective yeah i agree i mean good trial lawyers will tell you, I think, I mean, I've been around several of them, you know, in my lifetime, knowing the law or citing the correct law is, is part of it, but it's not so much, well, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? It's how you deliver that message. It's body language. It's all that stuff. And so I, I don't know how AI is going to help uh, litigants sort of have better you know, body language in a courtroom. It's not going to help them be more persuasive. It, it might help them get to the right, uh, you know, statute or case. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't know how effective it would be. And I, you know, I got I guess I've got to sort of plead ignorance on this because it's such a new, it's certainly something that I've been thinking about because you see it all over the place. It's ubiquitous, but I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what, what the advantage is um, of, of AI? Like what's it designed to do? Uh, I think right now it's primarily designed to be a landing spot for, uh, the crypto people that all got, uh, 
washed out over the past six months. And so they're all like formerly crypto person is now like the current AI person, um, <laughs> at least as far as I can tell. But uh, but yeah, I think that that's I think you're exactly right. That's the show for today. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. You can either leave your comments below or email us. Talk to you in a couple of weeks.